deal with prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come and hear from your word. We pray, Father, that what it is that is said would be from you and probably give us ears and a heart that will listen to what it is that you're calling us to. Father, help us to eliminate the distractions around us and within us. Help us to hone in on what it is that you're saying today. We thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to read it together. So Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So at some point in your life, you may have said, I just need to escape all the negativity. I just need to get out of this bubble. I need to find my happy place. Well, here this morning, I want to tell you that the United Nations has found your happy place. They have done research and through looking at analyzing 156 countries, uh, they've looked at their income, their life expectancy, the social support, freedom, trust, generosity, and the absence of corruption they have found, at least for this year, the place that you need to go. That place is Finland. Finland is apparently, much to Disney World's dismay, the happiest place on earth. They beat Norway, and I'm sure they're throwing parades for that, but they, they're the happiest place on the face of the planet, apparently. They, they talked about how they, even in the dead of winter, people love going on bike rides in Finland, and they have a happy look outlook on life, and they love music festivals and national parks in the summer. Their, their education system is good, and they have a great economy, and so they think this is, this is the happiest place on earth. I know what you're asking. Well, where are we? Well, we are 18. We are 18. We were 14 last year. We got richer and yet more angry. Uh, we are 18th in the world. We're still beating England, so take that. <laughs> but everything else, we're, we're the 18th happiest place on the earth. Finland is number one. Now, I, I think it's funny that you look at this data and all of a sudden assume that people should be happy. I've never been to Finland. Maybe people are just smiling everywhere that you go, but I doubt that. They probably have the same trouble there that we have here. Uh, the truth of the matter is our happiness is so often tied into things that really can't hold it. We tie our happiness into wealth or health or success, and something comes in and messes with any of those three, we are no longer happy. Now, these are pretty significant things. Right? If you get sick, there's, there's probably a change in attitude, and it would be justified. But let's be honest, there are some other things that we tie our happiness to that aren't really foundational, and yet they still affect our mood. For instance, your chance of getting a perfect NCAA bracket this year <laughs> was one in nine quintillion. One in nine quintillion was your chance, and yet, some of you got your hopes up. <laughs> some of you thought throughout the day that things were going really good, and then when that one team lost, you got mad. One in nine quintillion chance, and you get mad. We tie our happiness into such things like, like that. We, we tie our happiness on the weather, the month that we're in. We tie our happiness to the stock market. We tie our happiness to who's in office. We tie our happiness to all of these different things that can change in the blink of an instant. But we are called, as Tom talked about in his communion meditation, we're called to be joyful. 
We are called to be a people of joy. And so the question is, what is it that we can tie ourselves to that is unchanging and that is capable of holding the weight of our expectations? What can we do to become happy and joyful? As we have throughout this series, we're taking a look at things in the Old Testament because, as we talked about the first week, the Old Testament points to Jesus. And it shows Jesus even if we don't think that it does. And there's one instance of something that is throughout the Old Testament that really does point to Jesus. And we're going to take a look at that because it has a lot to do with our understanding of happiness. In Exodus 25, God is giving Moses instructions on how to build the certain things that need to be in the tabernacle. And he gets to this thing that he's going to call the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. God tells Moses, he says, Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and outside, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlap, overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of the law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim of hammered gold and the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on one end and the second cherubim on the other. Make the cherubim on one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim that have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover uh, with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place on the cover, on top of the ark, and put it in the put in the ark the tablets of the covenant that I will give you. Now, the reason I did this was because next time you complain about how complicated it is to put something together. <laughs> Those of you guys who put those bookcases out there yesterday, we can't complain. I mean, look at that. It's okay to laugh at church, probably. Even if the joke's not that fun. But all of this, and these specifics on what they're supposed to do, what's the purpose for this? Verse 22 says, There above the cover between the two cherubim that are all over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet you and I will give you all my commands for the Israelites. So this Ark that contains the... The, the law. It's where God was going to come to reside. It's where God was going to get to a point the Israelites would stop and they would set up camp and in the Holy of Holies they would put this. And this is where the glory of the Lord left his place in the sky guiding them where they're going came down and met face to face with Moses. And so this is a picture and we don't really know exactly what it looks like. But this is close to what it is supposed to look like. And the idea is that God would come and he would, above these two cherubim, and he would have conversations with Moses. And the Bible tells us that God talked to Moses as if he was talking to a friend. So this was an awesome sight. You see that they would go and then they would stop and the glory of the Lord would come. People would stand outside their tents and they would watch that and they would be amazed by it. And then whenever the glory of the Lord left, they would pack up and they would leave. <laughs> And so God's presence was represented as this ark. It was everywhere you went, God's presence went with you. 
And you would think that this would continue to be the center of Israel's life. It would make sense that you would always honor this and that it would be put in a place of prominence. It would make sense that you would never try to manipulate God through this ark for personal gain. And yet, the Israelites did all of that. We see that they get into the promised land. Everything is going peachy for them. And then all of a sudden they get a corrupt leader. Eli is the priest, except he doesn't hear from God. And the main reason he doesn't hear from God is the fact that his two sons, are, who are serving as priests, also are terrible people, wicked people. The Bible says that they detested God. They treated everything that was supposed to be holy as something for their personal gain. One of the instances of this is that they would sacrifice this meat, and they were supposed to wait for a certain time to pull it out and take their portion. They would take it before it was fully ready because it tasted better and keep it for themselves. Now, the problem with Eli is that he was the type of parent who would say, you really shouldn't do that. Hey, can you pass the meat? He's the type of parent who really did not like that they were doing this, and yet continued to allow them to do that behavior. Didn't put anything in their way, any barrier in the way to keep them from acting, acting wicked. And so he is as guilty as they are. And so there comes a point where the Philistines are around this camp and the Israelites want to go and they want to attack the Philistines. And so they do this in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and they're routed. Like it's not even close. And so they get back and being so fully aware of themselves, they think that there's some outside problem that is why they just got whipped. Right? There's something out there that, that's causing this. And so they had this bright idea. Well, the problem is we didn't take the Ark of the Lord with us. Now, the Ark of the Lord is still there, but Eli, his sons, and really all of Israel, based on their leading, is ignoring its significance. And so basically what they're doing is they're taking the Ark as a good luck charm to go into battle. And we see the result of this in 1 Samuel 4, verse 10. It says, so the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So this, this, this ark, that is where God would come down and would communicate with Moses, is not even with God's people anymore. It is gone. Israel has lost it. And what would happen in this time is that the Philistines or another conquering nation would come in and not only would they kill you, they would take your gods because those gods were not powerful enough to stop them and they would bring them and they would set them before their God, wherever that was, as a, as a sign that they were conquered. They would be, even their gods could not defeat them. And so they do the same thing with the ark. Remember, this thing, this, 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 this thing that had the covenant of, of Israel inside of it, the stone tablets inside of it, this is where God met with Moses, is now with the Philistines, and it is sitting at the feet of the Philistine God. And this is an aside, I don't know that it has much to do with what we talked about today, but this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, because they put the ark next to their God, Dagon, and they come back the next day, and their idol is face down on the floor in front of the ark. And so maybe they thought a stiff breeze came through or something. So they came back and they set it back up. And they came back the next day. And, and the idol is now headless and handless. And it's laying before the ark of God. All right. Which is an aside. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Your God 
is worthy to be worshipped, and your God is more powerful than anything else in this world. Okay? This is what he's trying to get. Because if you fall face down, you're either worshipping or you're defeated. And two times this happens to this idol. And so... That's not the extent of it. He didn't just pick a fight with this, this stone image. He picks a fight with the Philistines. If the people of God weren't going to take God with them, God was going to show up. And so where the ark is, they start getting these tumors and they start dying and they start getting sick. And so they realize that ever they kind of track back the day. When did this start? Oh, it's when we brought this here. And so they take it to a different town. Guess what happens in that town? That town, the same exact thing happens. They start getting sick. They start dying. They're inflicted with tumors. And so they say, well, we got to take this somewhere else. And when they go take it somewhere else, the people of that town said, no way. No way. Do not bring this in here. Do not even. No, you go away. And so they got together and said, what are we going to do? And they said, let's just give it back. Let's just give it back. We obviously have really ticked off this God, and we don't want anything to do with him anymore. Let's, let's give it back. And so they do. They give it back, but it doesn't go to the heart of Israel. It stays on this, the outskirts of Israel. And so you fast forward through the reign of Saul, and you get to David. David has kind of won this civil war between, uh, within Israel, and he becomes the king. And we see that one of the first things he does when he gets to this, what is now called the city of David, Jerusalem, what he, you know, one of the first things he does is says, we've got to get this back. And so 2 Samuel 6, we see that they go to get it back. 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, it says, David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. Now, I'll stop there for a second, because if you remember what we read earlier, there were 30,000 people who died in the battle where the ark was taken. Now, David is taking 30,000 people with him to get it back. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio. See the keys? You read them fast so no one knows that you don't know. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guarding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And so let's recap what's happened here. David is taking 30,000 people with him to something that's not a battle. He's taking 30,000 people with him where there's not going to be conflict. Why? Because David is throwing the biggest Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade in all of history. David is throwing a party and he is inviting 30,000 people to come along with him. Because David understood this is huge. We're bringing the ark back to where it is supposed to be. And there is a celebration and there is a band and there is musical instruments and everyone is celebrating because they realize that what they have now represents that God is coming back to where he's supposed to come. Now something happens on the way to the air and the ark starts to tilt a little bit. So someone reaches out to try to steady it and they're struck down. And David has a little bit of an issue with that and talks to God about it. But eventually they regroup and eventually they get back and start heading into town. And in, in the town we see the picture in verse 14. It says, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpet. In other words, no one could mistake that something's going on. This is a big deal. 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael's daughter of Saul watched from the window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. So David throws a party. He throws a party, and there's music, and there's food, and they sacrifice and, uh, this, this Thanksgiving offering. This is a huge celebration. And then he goes home. And in verse 20, it says, when David returns home to bless his household, in other words, he is so excited about what's happening here. He's now going to go bless his home. Michael Dollar Saul came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. He comes home and his wife is nagging. He comes home and his wife is so embarrassed that she had to sit and watch her husband act like this. And then David said to her, he says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor David says, do you not understand what's happening here? This is a representation of what we've been hoping for. Ever since Eli and through Saul, God has not really been here. He has not been the focus. Now the ark of God is exactly where it is. God is with us again. We should be celebrating. We should be jumping up and down. And I may even get a little crazier than this, not because I'm putting on a show, but because I cannot contain the joy that is inside of me that God is back here. I, I am so excited that God is here. And you read through the Old Testament, and what you see is that when people experience the fact that God is with them, they are filled with immense joy. When they experience that God has come alongside them, when God has delivered them, when God is with them in the middle of everything that's going on, they are able to say, rejoice. Praise Him. They say things like, the Lord is my strength. He is my shield. He is my hope. He is my deliverer. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. We celebrate in the midst of everything because God is with us. And then there's a verse in Isaiah 7.14 that comes up every Christmas. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a son. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call Him Emmanuel. God with us. See, that very first Christmas, we met Emmanuel. God left His kingdom. He left his throne and he came to us just as he did in the old days coming down but he didn't live in a holy of holies and he didn't live above an ark he lived as Jesus the word made flesh and he dwelt among us God is with us and so can I ask you why aren't you smiling
The God of the universe came down because he desperately wanted a relationship with you. And he promises to never leave you or forsake you and he will be beside you through the thick and through thin, through fire and flood. God says, I am with you. Why aren't you smiling? Why do we as Christians go around with bad attitudes and salty Facebook comments? Why do we as Christians say, woe is me when God says, bless are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the need. Blessed. We should be joyful. There should be a tangible difference in the joy and the life that you live than other people. In Psalm 16, the psalmist says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. What's this? You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The psalmist says, when you are with me, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I can't quit smiling because I know that the God of the universe cares. That the God of the universe loves me. And that he is for me. And that he is against my enemies. God is with me. My goodness, I can't help but to smile. I can't help but to be blessed. You see, finding joy in God means that we can move on from our past, we can have strength in our today, and we can have hope in the future. No bracket, no wealth, no anything else can provide you that. But God can. And God will. Paul knows that this is a difficulty. And he knows it is because the early church is facing strip, it's really strict persecution. And so what does he, he tell them? He tells them to grin and bear it. He tells them just to sulk and one day it'll get better. Now, Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. In other words, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, the persecution's happening. Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord. Man, you know what family life's not going on. Rejoice! You know what? This, this is just, this life is so hard. And man, all those Facebook posts, they just really make me mad. And the news is sad. And all rejoice! God came down, lived as a man, died as a savior, rose again, lives inside of you, suck it up, rejoice. <laughs> rejoice, he's 40. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who died for you. You have a God who lives inside of you. And you have a God that says no height, nor death, nor angel, nor demon, nor death, nor life can separate you from the love of God. He is always with you. So rejoice and be glad so that we can shout like Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Nothing else can stand us me. And there is no other place I'd rather be than to be with him. People know you're happy. 
Do they know you have joy? Can they see a tangible difference in the fact that when bad things happen, you still have hope and you still have a smile on your face? Do you understand the witness of a smile because God is with you? Because He is. You see, the source of our joy is that God is with us. Every hour, every day, every situation, every chapter of your life, God is with you. So rejoice in the Lord of us. Rejoice. But you have to have the source of joy to be And sometimes there's things in our life that get in that way and they distract us and we end up having a pity party and we just, we just live defeated. If you're a Christian, you share in a victory that lasts for all of eternity. And so this morning, I invite anyone who has not made that a realization in their life to come and say that you want the source of that joy. We want to celebrate with you alongside the angels today. But for all of us, we have a decision to make. Will we get upset? Will we get mad? And will we get stressed? And will we get whatever like everyone else? Or, or will we rejoice? decision you have to make today. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so thankful for you. You created the heavens and the earth. You existed before anything else existed. And in your mind, you wanted to create us. And you wanted to make a way, if we had messed up, that you would continue to be with us. And so you had Jesus dying on the cross in your mind from day one. And you promised us the Holy Spirit that would come and live inside of us when we came to know you and accept Jesus as, as our Savior so that you would never have to leave us again. God, thank you because that is the best news, the greatest news that we ever could imagine. Thank you, God, that you are with us. Thank you that we can smile in the face of adversity. Thank you that we have hope that will be fulfilled and promises that we know you'll, you'll come through on. God, help us to be a church that smiles and a church that sees joy and a church that is encouraging and a church that is moved by the fact that you are always with us. Thank you, God. But this isn't just puffy language, but this is the reality. You are with us. Thank you. Father, today I pray that if you feel distant to someone, that they would realize that you're still there. That you would move in our hearts and our lives so that we would be ready whenever to tell people the hope that we have in you. Thank you for Jesus who makes this all possible. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you do have a decision,